0: ask you to bless this time as we look at your word, guide and lead us, and show us what you would want us to see from these scriptures tonight. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jude, chapter one. (laughs) The only chapter. We We made it through verse one last week. We're going to start at verse two. Mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave... All diligence to write unto you for the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men. Turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, we're going to stop there because I don't know if we're going to get past too far past that. So here is Jude saying his greeting to them. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. I really kind of love this, you know, because his, his whole greeting is Mercy. God not giving you what you, what you deserve. His compassion, in, in, in other words. And then he goes, and peace. And I've given this definition several times to us from the Greek. Peace is the tranquil state of the soul assured of its salvation through Jesus. And so not fearing anything from God, but content with its earthly lot whatsoever state that be. I can say it again. (laughs) The tranquil state of a soul, assured of its salvation through Jesus, and so not fearing, watching pens here. nothing from God so not, fearing nothing. not fearing nothing of judgment oh, oh. And content with its earthly lot Whatsoever sort that is that's a powerful definition of, of peace. I am perfectly content with God. I know no judgment's coming, no, no anger's coming from him. And I'm at peace with whatever I find myself in because I know that it is God in control. And if we can really learn that peace, that'll be wonderful because that is what it's all about. I'm not in fear of going to hell. I'm not in fear of God smacking me upside the head every time I turn around because of my actions. And no matter where I find myself at, I'm, in con- I'm content because I know God is in control. All right, and that is peace. And he says, let that, his mercy and his peace and his love, his agape, his unconditional love be multiplied unto you. I love that greeting. You know, let, this, let all these good things be multiplied. So it's fearing the judgment from God because at some point on earth we're going to be judged, right? We will, have, we will have consequences for our actions. Okay. What he's talking about under this is I'm not fearful of God cutting my salvation off, uh, dumping me down, you know, dumping me to the bottom and not picking me up because we take the whole of Scripture I'm saved. I know where my destination is. He says if I fall, he's going to pick me up. So even if we get consequences, we're not Even when we're getting a consequence, which is not condemnation, right. it's not judgment, then I'm, so I'm not fearful of that. Now, I should be concerned on one side of consequences. But again, if the only thing that keeps me from doing right is fear of the consequence, then there's a problem in the first place. That is part of why I don't do wrong. And that's part of why we get disciplined. When I would discipline my kids it was so that they would not do it again. And the, pain, the discipline had to be strong enough that they didn't want to do it again. You know, I don't want the spanking. I don't want to be restricted. I don't want to lose the privileges for the car for, for a month depending on what age they were. And God does the same thing with us. He knows what the consequences need to be for the discipline but again, I don't fear the consequence necessarily because I still know God is in charge and he's doing it for my good. And this is where peace comes from. My trust in God that he is good, that he is you know, wanting what's best for me, uh, that he is only going to let whatever happens to me that is good happen. And then I can have peace. I can just sit back and say, all right, God, you, you've got this. And that's where my peace comes from, okay? You know, do I like everything that happens to me? No, not generally. Am I content that God is in control? Yes. This is why Romans 8, is my is really my favorite verse, and literally is. I know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So I know eventually I will be rewarded even if it's in heaven. I know that it's going to be for good, if not my good, for somebody's good. And that God is the one determining if it's good. And that gives me a lot of peace because I don't have to sit there and, sit and figure, okay, God, I just don't understand this. How is this for my good? I just, uh, and I spend all my time you know, stumbling over it, Well, maybe it wasn't good. And that's where most people get to. If they can't understand why it's good, they get to the place where, well, maybe God lied to me and he was out of, you know, out of control for that period of time and you know, doesn't know what's going on and somehow I think I'm smarter than God and you know, end up not at peace. So that's mostly what's going on with Job and stuff. That was where Job was a lot of his time. You know, at first he started out really much at peace. And then as he was hammered by his friends and, and ending up seeing that his, his doctrine didn't match what was happening to him his doctrine said if you do good you get blessed. His doctrine, his doctrine was wrong. He had bad doctrine. When God puts us through tests even though God's testimony of Job was he is a perfect and upright man that hates evil and that was, his good, that was a good thing to say, he didn't also say and Satan I'm going to use you to help, help him learn the proper doctrine. When Satan is used in our life by God it's to teach us something even when it's just Satan saying, I'd like to go after that person. And God is saying, I want them to learn. I want, to, I want them to prove do they believe. I want to improve what they, what they believe. And for Job, he had this idea. Of the, he had the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel that is taught today is not new. It was believed in Job's day. And Job was in the days of Abraham. He was one of the, one of the early people. And he had prosperity doctrine. I follow God. I am blessed. You, you're you not You're not blessed. You must not be following God. Yeah, he couldn't understand. Because I can remember him saying, "Why was I even born? This is what you were going to do to me, God. You know, that's prosperity. Because I'm not prosperous. Why am I even here? I'm not prosperous. I lost everything. I don't think I did anything bad enough to deserve this much, you know, loss of wealth. And then along comes his, Three friends. Technically, the word, the word there is that they were his disciples. He had trained them. So they came back repeating his doctrines at him, not kindly. Uh, we're in the right. We don't have to be kind. We're going we're to we're baste you and poke you and, and prod you until you finally will admit that you did something to deserve this. Because we know, because you taught us, that if you do the right things, you are blessed no grace, no mercy, Uh, and there's a lot of people that are like that. And much of what God does when he brings in these kind of judgments on us, he is, number one, seeing will we stay steadfast in our walk to him, but he also does little things to teach us do we really believe whatever it is we say we believe. For Job, it was the prosperity doctrine and God saying you're not right. You know, I will do what I want. Now, the hard part is there's plenty of verses that say if we honor God, we will be blessed and he'll pour out blessings. And so the, the prosperity doctrine is really hard to argue in because they will give you verse after verse after verse after verse. But they'll forget all the sovereignty verses of God that say God's will do what he wants. Yeah, but, but also what you think a blessing is? is it a blessing? But that's true, too. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. The definition God. Yeah. Right. A blessing could just be the peace you feel for. God. Right, and that's where I go with it all the time. Yeah. So, and we're not supposed to be talking about this, but that's okay. I <laughs> started it. I started it. <laughs> but, but it is really true that all of these things that God does for us is to teach us. If he's teaching us about love and mercy and we think we have it but we don't fully understand it, He's going to teach us that we don't fully understand and we can't fully understand love. We can't fully understand mercy. We can't fully understand grace because every time we think we do, God will show us that we only have scratched the surface of, of that because those are all things that represent Him. And I've said this over and over, anything that represents God and is part of Him, we'll never fully understand. You know, I used to think that I knew how big God was. You know, he encompassed everything. But my definition of everything as I've grown older and gotten more into science is, is grown. It's not just everything. It's all the dimensions out there. It's all the, you know, if we want to get into the string theory and everything, it's all of those <laughs> possible dimensions and, and activities. So how big does God get? Pretty big. You know, when we start adding to all of this, and God says, well, let me just expand. How much does he love us? Well, you loved us enough to die for us. Well, that's quite a bit of love. But over the years, I've understood that God's love is so much more than that. Part of it is being a father and experiencing the love of a father and going, wow. (laughs) You know, I'm just beginning to scratch the surface of God's love. And so all of this, he's saying, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied unto you. He wanted them to understand deeper about God in a much deeper way. And then he said, beloved, I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. So here is kind of an interesting statement that he is making. Common salvation. This is something that again to the Jewish mindset is gonna be very hard for them to understand. Common, everybody. The salvation for everybody. And we've gotta put ourselves in the first century church, which is when this was written, the, Jews were st- the Jewish believers were still struggling with this idea of Gentiles becoming Christians without having to become Jews. This was a sore spot for many of the Jewish believers because they had this idea that, well, the only ones going to heaven are Jews, and now we've got all these Gentiles that are believing in Jesus and that are being saved, they've got the Holy Spirit upon them, and we know that they're exhibiting all the signs that they're supposed to show to be Christians, but they're not Jews. And he's saying, of the common salvation, that goes to everybody. And it's a very powerful word in the Greek that indicates that it was for everybody, not just one people group. So he's, he's, re, he's reiterating everything that Paul has been teaching, everything that Peter was teaching after he went to Cornelius' house, uh, everything that Barnabas taught. You know, that This has been a struggle. Because remember, right in the book of Acts, Barnabas at that time was leading in, in Antioch Barnabas and Paul were called to Jerusalem and Peter and many of the other ones were called into Jerusalem to meet with the other apostles and defend this preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. Because the Jewish apostles did not understand how can anybody be going to these uncircumcised, unclean <laughs> Gentiles. And again, we've talked about it. that The they they were teaching at that time that the only reason Gentiles were born was so they could keep the, hell's, the fires of hell burning. That was the only thing Gentiles were good for. And I, you know, they didn't understand the love of God. They didn't understand. They didn't even understand their own scripture, where God said, "These sacrifices, these rules are for all, not just for you." And even very clearly, and the aliens and anybody who wants to come worship me, it's for all people. And they just never accepted that Gentiles were loved by God. And so here we have him reiterating the common salvation. Everybody. And again, it's hard for us. We, we live you know, 2,000 years from when all of this was going on. We're not Jews to begin with. Because even today, Jews have this same attitude that Gentiles are worthless. The only ones going to heaven are them. You know, they're a little more accepting of people coming to them, but they don't understand that God loves the world. They go, God called Abraham to have a special, special relationship, and then He called uh, Jacob to have that. Isaac to have that special relationship. Then Jacob, and then the twelve tribes of Jacob, and none of the rest of the people have that special call. They're not. They're not worth anything. Because God chose us. And it's really tough for them to understand. You know, how anybody could be loved by God other than them. And here he is saying, you know, I wanted to write to you about the, the common salvation. <laughs> so this is triggering with people, you know, triggering with the Gentile or the Jews anyway. Um, and it was needful to write to me to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto all saints. Now I want to go into it was needful. It was necessary. All right. I had to do this. Now I don't know if you've ever been in a place where God has made it needful. Jeremiah, in, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, I am not speaking for you anymore, God, because I keep getting in trouble. which is a paraphrase. <laughs> you know, and then the ne- very next sentence after he says, I'm not going out. It says, your words burned in my mouth and I could not help but to speak. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I have been there where I have just had to say something. I just had to do something. Compelled, earnestly compelled by God, knowing that it was him. Uh, I remember teaching one time and, I, and it came to my mind that I had to say something. And I'm arguing while I'm preaching, God I can't say that because I know that it's aimed at a certain person in this church that I know what's going on and it'll sound like me so I don't believe that it's you speaking and, and it just kept going, you need to say this, you need to say this, you need to say this. Finally I said it and the person afterwards said, thank you, they really needed to hear what was said. Alright, uh, and in the back of my mind, I'm arguing to myself, you know, I know the situation, God, this is, this is me thinking this, this isn't, isn't you, but it just was that compelling. I knew it wasn't me in the long run. So this whole thing that comes in, he was compelled. He had to by the spirit. And then it says, for me to write to you and exhort you, encourage them to do this. And then he says that you should earnestly contend. Now, when we read this word contend in the English, what we think of is hard works. That's not what it means. This word was used of athletes training to get better at what they were competing in. And if you've ever played sports with a coach, some of the most boring times you have in practice where you get to do the same thing 100 times and you do it over and over and over and over again so that it gets muscle memory and muscle retention. And then you find yourself doing it in the game. Uh, you know, you're playing softball, you're playing hardball. And he says, stand in front of that ball, get down you know, in, in that position so that if you miss the ball with your, with your glove, it hits you. And you're going, I don't want to get hit by the ball. <laughs> and you don't do it, and you don't do it, and you commit, commit all these errors you know, as the ball goes way on the out, you know, way past you. And then you finally start doing it. And normally, you catch the ball, but if you don't, it stops there and you're able to make the play. Or if you're playing on the football line and you, get, you learn this is what you do, you, you, you come out of your stance this way, you know, and this is what it's talking about. You keep practicing and practicing. Now, I never did this, but if you practice in, in the relay and track, you, learn, you, spend, you don't spend a lot of hours learning to run because all those guys know how to run. What do they spend hours learning how to do? be in that little 10-foot transfer section and take that baton from their partner and keep running without slowing them down or slowing down yourself. They spend hours and hours working on just that pass so they can do it right. They spend hours learning to stay in their lanes and so they don't, because they don't get, or they'll be disqualified. All the various things that they learn to be on here, and this is what he's talking about, contend not trying to make perfect, but improving the performance through just repetitious practice. And again, this this fits with grace. The other way doesn't fit with grace. I gotta, I gotta earn my salvation, I gotta work hard to keep my salvation. No, that's not what it is. But I do wanna work at being able to do better at what I'm doing. Read more scripture, learn more scripture, listen to the Holy Spirit, study, and It takes a lot to just be able to study. And we're learning that on our how to study the Bible. We're learning the little techniques to be able to improve what we learn. Now, can we learn without all those studies and techniques? Absolutely. The Holy Spirit can teach us. But It's much better when we actually try to do what we're supposed to do and reach out to God and say, God, teach me to do better. Teach me to worship you better. You know, and we think, well, worship is so easy. You know when I found? Worship is not all that easy. It takes a lot of time to really f- get into worship. And I can't say that I worship all the time. Part of it is because I'm leading worship, and I'm not a big fan of leading worship. You know, and you all know when I really get into worship because I stop forgetting that I'm leading singing. <laughs> and, you know, start making up my own words or forgetting, forgetting that I'm singing or whatever else because I'm worshiping. So that's what happens. Yes. <laughs> There are many times when I just get into worship, and I just—I'm no longer reading the reading the words or anything. I am just worshiping, and as such, I'm not a big fan of being up front <laughs> leading worship. Uh, you know, my, my wife and Sam have both said the same. I have experienced it when you're trying to run the PowerPoint; you can't worship because you start you start getting into the singing and forgetting that you're supposed to push that button so everybody else can know the words. You know. And it is kind of a sad thing that ends up happening because sometimes when you're doing all these things, it takes away from the relationship with God. And very interesting on here, and he says, contend, learn to do these things, learn to be able to study, learn to be able to pray. You know, and this is the thing about it. How many people truly know how to pray? You know, and we think, well, it's just talking to God. Yes, it's just talking to God. You know, but what do we talk about? How do we pray? And it doesn't need a whole lot of flowery language and most of it is if we could really learn just to talk with him and, and then maybe shut up for long enough to listen. Most people don't listen when they pray. And prayer was supposed to be a conversation with God. And too many of us, including myself, don't always take time to listen and say, God, I am just waiting to hear what you want to say. And that's an important aspect of this. There's been times when I have been broken in prayer and just broken. I'm in God's presence. He's just working on me and I'm not saying a whole lot. I am just you know, laid out and usually find, you'll find me in that condition, literally laid out on the floor, you know, you know, in front of him and just saying, you know, wow, this is, this is, what a world. There have been various times when I have felt the very presence of God and felt literally in his presence. doesn't happen all the time. I wish it happened more. And it's probably my fault that it doesn't happen more. But just those few seconds, and I think it's seconds, it doesn't seem, it seems longer when it's going on, but not much time has passed here but just in his presence. in those handful of times when it's happened, I'm going, God, if this is what heaven's like, if this is even close to what heaven's like, let me go there now. I'm ready to go. You know, people go, I can't imagine worshiping God for all of eternity. Just those couple of seconds tell me it's going to be an experience that we will love worshiping God. I can picture worshiping God for hundreds of years if that's the... If that's the way it is, and I'm sure it is, and, and that's only a taste of it. It's a connection with God and being in his presence in a very strong way. And I don't have it often, and, I, and I've told people, I go, I've never experienced it. I go, I, I understand. I have not experienced it for the first 30 years of my worship, worship of God. I never really experienced it. It's only been in about the last 10, 15 years that I've really experienced entering into his presence literally entering into his presence when I worship and when I pray. this happen so much when I study, I just get excited about what I read, you know, but probably the same type of thing, though. I'm getting excited by what I'm being taught. It's just a wonderful thing to have happen, to actually enter into his presence. And I don't think there's anything we can really do to make it happen other than be in the right attitude. We're just in the a mode of worship. We're in the mode of prayer and just all of a sudden, His presence comes upon us. Which is part of what, one of the things I'm hoping, if we, get, if we get the revival that I would like to see our church hit, we'll have people actually entering into that presence more and more. And it is, mind, it is totally mind-changing about God when you enter into His presence. And you really start, and I don't want to get it down to it's not, we don't want to operate by feelings or anything, but it is wonderful to get those feelings once in a while. But those feelings also can get us lost. Because if we're trying to chase after feelings rather than truth, we can get ourselves in trouble, too. Well, it is much more. Yeah, it's not really even a feeling that you can conjure up. No, you can't conjure it up. That's why I say, I can't make it happen. I can be in the right attitude with God, I can be prayed up, I can be confessed up, and just entering in. Entering in and This is one of the problems I have with being the worship leader is I just can't enter into full worship. Now, I know there are people that that is their job and maybe they're able to do it. I don't know. I can't. Uh, Number one, I'm really not called to be a worship leader. I'm called to be a pastor, but somebody has to lead the worship. So I do. But to enter into his presence is just a wonderful place to be and you can lose yourself in his presence real quick. It's wonderful to be lost in the presence of God. And you really do, I have entered in at times into that timeless presence of God where it seems like I've been there for a long time and then I come back to whatever I'm doing and realize that no time has passed or very, very little time here has passed. And it's a wonderful place to be And This is what he's talking about. To write to you, to exhort to you, to contend, to get to this place uh, for the faith which was once delivered to you. And faith is that conviction, the conviction of something. Now, and this is the wonderful thing. Faith isn't just a blind commitment to something. It is literally from the scripture and from the Greek, a conviction that something is true. And conviction is much deeper than belief. It's much deeper than I think I understand. It is that idea of conviction. I am ready to die for what I believe. Okay? Uh, When I was a teenager, I I got this object lesson about breakfast. The chicken was committed to the breakfast. It gave an egg. The ham came from the pig who was committed convicted of it that he gave his life so that you could have that meat that meal all right the chicken just gave you part of it most Christians really are the chicken God I'll give you this extra part you know I really don't need this part you can have it but he is looking for people that are can have conviction they're giving him all that they are all that they have and saying God I give you everything and this is what he's talking about you know are you there with this faith you have it and it says you were, it was once delivered to the saints the idea that we have conviction yeah. and I've said this many times I don't expect everybody in the church to believe everything that I teach about the Word of God matter of fact I'd be scared if everybody agreed with everything I said to it, because then we'd have a cult the, the, the cult of Ralph. I don't want that. Now there are certain things I expect people to be convicted of. Jesus is the one and only Son of God who died for our sin, who lived a perfect life, died for our sins, and was resurrected. You cannot be a Christian without that belief. Plain and simple. If we disagree there, we've got a problem. All right. Uh, the Word of God is the absolute Word of God and, and, and it is what he said and it is correct. We are going to heaven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Outside of about those three things, there's not a whole lot that I'm going to say you must be, have the same conviction over. Those three things, if you don't have those convictions, we've got a problem. Because if we don't believe the word of God is the absolute word of God, then where do we draw, where, where do we draw our lines? You know, oh, well, I like this part, I don't like this part, I like this part, I don't like this part. What are we basing our life on? You know, I just became God deciding what I'm going to believe and what I'm not going to believe rather than accepting his word. And I've said, if this is not true, then I have nothing to stand on. If I can't believe every word of the Bible, then how do I know that God is going to keep me in heaven? How do I know that I'm going to be saved? Because that may be a part that I thought was really good and and wonderful, but it's not part of it to be believed if I'm, you know, if I don't believe the whole thing. Right, And it has to be. There is no Christianity without this being true. There is no Christianity without Jesus being the Son of God, living a perfect life and dying for our sins and being resurrected. Without these truths, there is no Christianity. And then, of course, Christianity is based on a hope of eternal life. So outside of that, I don't really care about where people are with with what they believe. Now, I'm hoping that we're in this church that we will agree with most of what I teach. (laughs) All right. And I'm very, very convicted and, and can give a reason for what I believe. And I've said this over and over again. If somebody doesn't believe what I believe, the only thing I ask is can you defend what you believe? Doesn't mean I'm going to agree with you. Matter of fact, I probably already know what you're going to say if you're going to say something different than what I believe because I have already studied the various other (laughs) options that as long as you believe honestly what you believe and can defend it, you know, you have the right for one of us to be wrong. I usually joke that you have the right to be wrong. (laughs) But one of us is obviously wrong and it really doesn't matter if it's not a salvation issue. You know, and I know what I believe, I know why I believe it. I honestly believe that I'm right, but you know, I also understand that I'm human and I could be wrong. So I don't want people agreeing with me just to agree. I want them to know what they believe. But like I say, outside of these three very staunch you know, those are areas where I will put my flag on the, on the ground and die over. All right? Jesus has to be the Son of God that saves us otherwise. Well, why have Christianity at all and the Bible must be true because I have to have something to stand on and if any word of the Bible is not true I've got a problem because now I can't, I can't trust any of it so and I've only studied it for 50 years and I haven't found anything wrong in it yet so well, granted it's only been a short time but I still have not found any problems with it so I don't think there's any problems. Other greater people, smarter people than I have not been able to find anything wrong with it. And the ones who do think they find it wrong, I already know the answers to what they think they found wrong. So it's not a problem. But it all comes down to where are we going to stand? Where do we put our faith and our conviction? My conviction is that this word is true. Now, may I, may I misinterpret some of it? Quite possibly but I'm still gonna stand on the word as the Holy Spirit has taught me to, to believe it. And sometimes the Holy Spirit will come in and say, uh, by the way, you, you don't know this right. You don't fully understand this. You're Job's believing in, believing in prosperity gospel and we're gonna correct your, correct your doctrine. Now, I don't believe in prosperity gospel, but you, know, you, know, you, you don't fully understand this doctrine. Let me, let me explain it to you deeper. Let me show you a little bit more about mercy. Let me show you a little bit more about grace. Let me show you a little bit more about love. You know, over and over again, shows me a deeper understanding of him. Not usually totally wrong, but just a deeper, better understanding. And every once in a while, especially in the past, he'll show me something that was totally wrong, and I'm going to have, oh boy, okay God, I've got to teach people correctly now. <laughs> you know, and then come back to my class and teach them the right way. <laughs> The right way and correct what I had taught. But this is what he's saying Are we going to be holding our faith, our conviction? And one of the problems is it's hard, even for God, to change our convictions because if we're ready to die for something, we're going to wonder. The first instinct is uh, I'm being attacked. I'm being attacked by the enemy trying to get me to quit believing what I believe. Even when it's God trying to correct us, <laughs> so it's it's tough because we have put our full faith and conviction in something, and it's hard to pull back and say, "I was wrong," because my conviction has been, at least I think, through the Holy Spirit. And then when the Holy Spirit even comes along and says, uh, "By the way, you're not right," why was it so hard for Job? he was absolutely convinced of the prosperity gospel. The only way God could teach him otherwise was to strip him of all of his prosperity and then show him that he was still loved by God so that he could now understand the truth about God. When God has to do that same thing to us, it's tough because he says, you don't fully understand. Now I'm going to have to really I want to teach you how to love. You think you know how to love. And then in walks somebody who is totally unlovable. Not just slightly unlovable, but totally unlovable. And God says, love that person. Uh-uh, no way, God. They, they don't deserve it. They're not nice. They're not kind. They're actively out to get your people. No way. And God says, you're going to love that person and puts you in their path every time you turn around. They're there. They're at church. They're at the Bible study. They're at your, they're at your home. They're at the meetings that you go to. They're, you meet them in the store. You meet them everywhere. And God is trying to teach you. you know, and it goes through any doctrine out there. Anything that you're learning, God will say, alright, let's, let's, let's help you learn this better. Let's help you, help you learn it deeper. We're learning to contend <laughs> in, for that area. And you know, and it's not us, it's not our strength. Basically, he wants us to be broken and let him live through us. He wants to crucify our flesh and say, I want to live through you. And that's hard because none of us likes to give up our flesh. The flesh doesn't like to give up, it knows it's getting nailed on a cross. And it fights hard against being nailed on the cross. And unfortunately, sometimes we help it fight by rejecting the truth and then God has to come in a little harder and a little harder say we're gonna put, put that flesh on the cross we are getting rid of it and finally we get run out of strength. God is just a little bit stronger than any of us no matter how strong we think we are in the area God is stronger he has more endurance our memory verse, he does not faint, or, nor does he grow weary. <laughs> we faint and grow weary. Uh, Jacob wrestling the angel all night long. And at the very end of the, the wrestling match, if you remember, the angel touches his thigh and puts it out of socket. And he walks for the rest of his life with a limp. You know, God... Can do whatever it takes to make sure that we're going to remember the story. And remember that he is strong. And so this is where it goes on. And then he goes in. This verse 4. I huh? have a question. Is one delivered unto the saints delivered by Jesus or just delivered by their faith? Both. <laughs> well, originally, yes, what Jesus gave. But he's writing to all the saints who don't necessarily. Otherwise, he'd just be writing to, 12 people, to 500 or so people. So he's writing to everybody who's ever been, been delivered the message of faith. Oh, okay. I, was, I was thinking it was just the apostles. No, no. He's not. He, remember, his target is to yeah. all those who are called by Jesus. Yeah. So he is, he is writing to everybody. Yeah, it says, which was once delivered under the saints, but that means all saints, not saints. Saints, yes, all saints. We're all saints. Anybody who is a Christian is a saint. So, good question. All right. Verse four starts with something that was going to be very hard for us to keep in mind. Virtually the rest of the book is on this topic. At least from uh, verse four to to at least uh, verse 19 is all about this. And we're going to be taking several weeks to get through this. So try to remind us that we're looking at false teachers. All right. This is what all the things come from the next verses will be, this is what false teachers are trying to do to you. And very important to keep this context in mind as we go through. This is why so much of this book is lifted out of context and dumb things are said, because he's telling you this is what these false teachers are trying to do to you. So we want to keep this in context as we go through. And again, I'll try to remember to mention this every week when we meet during these these uh, next 15 verses. So verse 4 says, for there were certain men crept in unawares who before old of, of old ordained to this condemnation ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's starting to talk about people sneaking into the church. Now obviously we know that Paul had this problem everywhere he went. He would come in and either before he left or right after he left a city, the Judaizers would come in. And their message was all very much the same. Paul had a really good message, but he didn't give you the whole story. You have to become Jews. You know, you can't, this grace of God thing, you know, this grace of God in Jesus, that's a wonderful thing. But, and they would come in, and so this is what, you know, obviously from what we're seeing here, Paul wasn't the only one that had this happen to him. It was happening everywhere, and it still happens today. You'll go to a church that's growing, the grace ministry, is, the grace of God is being emphasized, and the power of God is being emphasized, through the, his grace and his mercy, and eventually legalistic people will come in and say, well, you know, it's really wonderful, this grace stuff is really, really good. But you have to keep God's laws. You have to do this. You have to do that. And they'll start giving you this long list of things you need to do for your salvation. And this is where the problem happens in growing churches. We start out with a good message. We are saved by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then slowly works come pulling in. Well, you know, God, we just have to live the right way. You know, we can't have these people all living by grace because they might go out and sin. Well, you know what? That's God's problem. That's not my problem as a pastor. If people are going to go out and sin because they think that grace is going to cover that sin, then God will have to spank them. I cannot be putting laws on people to say, well, you know, good Christians don't cuss, they don't smoke, they don't drink, they don't don't go on party, they don't do this, they don't do that, they don't, you know, give this long list of things they don't do. That's not, no longer Christianity, that is a works-based Christianity. Now, will people start changing all that stuff over time? Most likely, because the closer they draw to God, the more he's in them, the more he's changing them, the more they will become like him. And the more their light will shine and the more they will be different from the world. But That's all the sanctification that comes out where God changes who they are. We have complete liberty in Christ, which means we can do anything. Paul said that. He goes, you want to eat meat offered to idols? Be my guest. You don't want to eat meat offered to idols? Be my guest. You know, all through this. Now, there are certain things that we don't do where God says thou shalt not. Don't, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't, don't use God's name in vain. There's a number of things that we know are wrong. But even in those, we're not under the law because we're drawing close to God and saying, God, you know, I really don't want to use your name in vain. You know, you don't have to tell me not to. I love you so much, I don't want to, to use their, you know. And imagine some husband, when they're getting mad and cursing, start using their wife's name to curse. You know, nobody would do it in the first place, but just imagine, you know, a Christian doesn't want to use God's name in vain. We know that the life of a body is given to them by God. Do we want to kill anybody because it is God? You know, eventually we shouldn't even want to get there, but you know, we might when we're starting out and if we have problems with anger. (laughs) You know, when we know that God has provided everything that we need and He's the one that provides others with, the, with what they have, we don't want to steal what they have. We don't want to covet what they have because God is blessing them and not blessing us for some strange reason in our mind. But you understand what I'm saying? The more we follow God, the more we don't want to do the things He says not to do. Not because we're bound by the law, but we're bound by the love of God in our heart. And then we don't, we don't, we're not sitting there saying, I can't do this because God said no. We're doing this because God has blessed them. He's blessed me. He's given me everything I need. I don't need all these other things. I don't need to disobey. And he just puts it in our heart. So here he says, There are men that have crept in unawares. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Judaizers and they look good, they look good. Many times they get to be teachers in churches because they really look good. And then they start teaching and we realize how much of wolves they are as they don't teach God's word and they don't teach truth. And he says they come in unawares, they've crept in, uh, they have no conviction of the truth uh, and they were before ordained to this condemnation and this is kind of a scary thing. Before ordained, God already knew that they were going to do this. Now, some people would be then say, well, see, they had no they had no options. No, they still had their options. God only knew what they were going to do. Yeah, like we choose, they chose. They chose. They chose the wrong way. They chose the wrong things to do. But God already knew that it was going to happen. Remember, Jesus gave the, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And he said that there were going to be evil people within his church. Growing up with the wheat. So we are talking this morning about the, the veil of the people's life that stays there. And does God keep that veil there on those that he knows are going to be? Mostly they choose, not, they choose to leave it there. They choose to believe what they believe rather than, be, than transitioning under what God says. And it's easy to have a veil. Yeah. I've been there where I've chosen to believe what I've always believed in spite of what God was trying to teach me. But see, they don't always know that they're evil because they've got that veil in front of their face thinking that they're doing the right thing. Many of these people that are Judaizers, that are legalists, they think they're doing what is good. Obviously, if we're going to serve God, we must live this way. Paul. Paul, when he first started out, most of the Pharisees, the Pharisees get a bad name, and yes, there were many of them that were hypocrites. But there were a lot of them that weren't hypocrites. They were doing the best they could to serve God. Now, they had forgotten about God, because they were so focused on the 613 laws that they had to keep and all the extra laws that they had added on top of that so that they didn't break the 613 laws. And then they would be critical of other people because if you're living under legalism, it really breeds comparison. I'm keeping all these rules, you're you're not as good as me. And that's the problem with legalism, the ultimate problem with legalism, it breeds that comparison. I've kept 5 of the 10 laws, you've only kept 3. Oops, not going to count you. You're, you've kept 8 of them as far as I can tell. And they're looking down on the people who don't keep, don't keep all, you know, as many as they do. And this is the problem with legalism. It brings us into this comparison. If nothing else, it makes me compare how well am I doing to whatever laws that I have put in my life. And then we get somebody coming along and say, oh by the way, this law should be added to your laws and there's never enough laws. And then you're struggling with, am I good enough to please God? You know, how, how many laws have I broken? How many laws have I kept? Have I kept enough of the laws to to please God, or are the few that I've been breaking gonna keep me from pleasing God? And if you fully understand the scripture, the few that you are breaking keep you from pleasing God. But how much of the world dwells in this kind of, of exercise? every religion in this world is based upon do more good than bad to please the deity and none of them answer how much good is enough they don't answer is one bad thing worth 12 good things you know or a hundred good things if I do a lot of bad can I ever make up for it with all the good that I do none of them ever answer that which is why Christianity being a relationship God is different from all other religions because we'll answer one question. You're never good enough. Except by the grace of God and his salvation, you are not good enough to enter into heaven. You know, and I love it when people go, well, you never know if you're good enough to go to heaven. I go, yeah, you do. They go, what? I go, you're not. And neither am I. I go, and then get into the whole gospel message. Because it is, that is the good news. I am not bound by my obedience. I am bound only by the grace of God. And when I accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he goes, now, I am clothed in you and my son and you are perfect. Now we know we're not perfect, but God sees us as perfect. And when we stand at the beaming seat of Christ, Jesus is going to say, Father, here, this, is, this, this, is my, this, is, this is your child." See, see their perfect clothes? They've got my righteousness. And he says, welcome. What a beautiful picture. And this is the hard thing. He got teachers coming in to preach against the gospel of Christ. Against that message. And it says, to this condemnation, ungodly men. So this is very harsh. Ungodly men impious men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Now that's a strong word unbridled lust do what you want Now, I've already talked about this. When we're saved, we are given liberty, which means I can do what I want. But it is not lasciviousness. I don't go into doing everything that I want. Liberty has the bounds of love around it. I love God so much that I don't want to do what's going to bring bad uh, image to him. Uh, I'm not sure about the other branches, but I know the Navy talks about having liberty. You get to get off the ship. And that meant you you were free to do what you wanted on shore. There was a provision in there as long as you didn't bring dishonor to your uniform. Okay? And I think God has that same type of thing. We have liberty to do what we want, but we're not to dishonor his name. So there is that little bounding around saying, don't do this. But he doesn't really define what we can and can't do. But these men were coming in and they were saying, well, the the two extremes were they either brought law in there saying you've got to follow all these laws. Or because you're under grace, just go out and do what you want. And Paul addressed that. He goes, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And then he goes, many of you will say, well, if grace abounds because of the sin, then I'll go out and sin a whole lot so grace really abounds. And then he said, God forbid. How can you even come up with that kind of an attitude? And paraphrasing a little bit, but that's what Paul's basically saying. How can you even think that way? The cost of your salvation was so great, you already have great grace just because of the sin that he's forgiven. Why would you want to go out and do more sin just so you can have more grace. And you know, and it's really bizarre thinking. And those are the two extremes. Well, if I'm going to be in grace, and grace abounds because of sin, well, I'll just really go on out and give lots and lots of sins so I get lots and lots of grace. Or I'm going to really be careful. I'm going to put myself under these, these however many laws. Every, everybody has a different amount of laws. The Jews had 613. They counted 613 laws in the Old Testament. You know, many churches probably have at least that many when, they, when you stay there long enough. Uh, you know, uh, what was a famous statement in the, the 50s and 60s, uh, I don't drink, uh, don't drink, smoke, gamble, or go to movies and don't go with girls that do. You know, uh, your list of things you couldn't do. You know, uh, and that was just a small list and it wasn't even the complete list. You know, my mom was turned off by church because she went to a church that said, women, you cannot wear, you cannot wear pants to church. Men, you've got to keep your hair cut. You can't have long hair, and you've got to be dressed up to come to church. All these rules, and I don't know where they found them in the Bible to, to make these rules. Some of them I kind of know where they came up with, even though they misinterpreted them. Uh, but, you know, we've got these things that are out there, and we've put in all these laws and all these rules to say, this is how you have to live to be a good Christian. Well, I'm sorry, but it's all by grace. And it's really hard that there's many churches that don't want to bring up grace because what are are the leaders afraid of? If I teach grace, then everybody's going to go out and sin. Well, if that's your problem, then number one, you don't understand grace, you don't understand salvation, and you're not teaching your people to understand grace and salvation either. I have never really seen a place where grace has been taught correctly where people just go out and party all week long. It just doesn't make sense to me they're not being taught the proper definition of grace and salvation and walking with God if that's where they're going to go to. And that's a problem. And, it, you know, and I can understand how grace could lead to lasciviousness. Don't get me wrong, I can, if you're not careful about how you teach it and you're not careful about teaching true salvation, I can understand how people would enter into lasciviousness. Well, if, if I'm governed by grace, I'll just go out and do what I want. and I I am a sinful, sinful person living in my flesh, I'm going to really go out and do what I want. There's still consequences, yes. (laughs) And then the second part of these deceivers is denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what happens. If somebody is not teaching grace properly, the next step they will do is deny God and deny Jesus. Who is Jesus? This is the first thing you want to find out when you go to a church somewhere out there. Who is Jesus? Find out who he really is. Cults deny that he's Jesus that Jesus is the Son of God. We have other places that deny, deny that there is even a God. And unfortunately, there are places that call themselves Christian churches. That they'll deny that there is a God and deny Jesus Christ. I don't know how they can call themselves Christian churches because how can you be a Christian church if you don't believe in Jesus? But there are many denominations that have fallen so far from where they started at that they can really do not deserve the title Christian anymore. And yet they'll call themselves Christian. And this is a sad thing out there. There are many denominations, many many cults out there that deny Jesus or really de-emphasize him to the point where if he was to show up in their church he wouldn't be welcomed anyway you know and this is what he's saying these men have slipped in unawares they've changed the gospel into lasciviousness they deny Jesus and they deny God I don't want to see us ever get to that point I want to make sure that we're always understanding who Jesus is, that there is a God, and that grace leads to sanctification. Because that is what is true. And believe me, I already understand, I have seen this in more than one church where people have come in trying to bring legalism. So
1: that's and how
0: they're denying Lord God. It's just the first step in denying it. Because if I can start getting everybody focused on the legalism... It gets God out of the picture and then slowly he's completely out of the picture. Denying Jesus we see all the time. You know, there are so many places that deny that Jesus is the son of God. Uh, some say he's not, you know, he was a great prophet. Some say he's a son of God. Uh, he was a good man, a good teacher, whatever it might be. They, they start maligning him. And nobody will come into a good solid church and just automatically say Jesus isn't God. It will almost always start with bring in legalism, and then legalism brings in lasciviousness in and of itself. Because all of us, when we're given a rule, want to disobey. It's just the human nature. Now, I may try for a while, but eventually I'm going to get tired of just being obedient. And then there comes that breaking point where it's not just all, well, one law, but it turns to be all the laws. Well, if if this is all about laws, then I don't want anything to do with it. And this is what turns a lot of young people away from church because they're not taught the grace of God. They're not taught salvation. They don't get into a relationship with God, and they see everything about rules and laws. And if it's all about rules and laws, who wants it? I don't want Christianity if it's all a bunch of rules and laws. I am in a relationship with the God of the universe and with Jesus Christ and now it's a whole different way of thinking. You know, then I look at you shall not steal. Well now it's no longer negative to me, it's like well I don't want people stealing from me so why should I steal from them? You know, don't use the Lord God's name in vain. Well God I love you, why would I want to use your, use your name in vain? See how the rules change in them when they're not, thou shalt not, they're like, why would I even want to in the first place? Because I am in a relationship with this God who's trying to teach me to be kind and loving and caring of His creation that He created and I'm part of. And now these things are like, well, I don't want these things done to me so I really shouldn't be doing it to others and it changes my whole perspective in it. they're not negatives anymore, they're really protective and He's trying to protect us from these individuals that are coming in to misguide and take us away from Him. And we do need to always be on care because when God is moving in a church, Satan will try to put terrors in that church. Now this is the side, flip side of it. We are praying for revival. We get revival, I guarantee you there's gonna be some terrors coming into this church. They're gonna look spiritual at first. And without discernment, we won't won't know who they are. And slowly there will be little things said, little things done to try to tear down the revival that's going on. That is what happens. And it may be a year after the revival. It may be two years after the revival. Long enough for everybody to forget to be on on their guard. So this is one of the things we need to remember on here. He's saying watch for those that come in unaware. And start, you know, little things. Well, you know, if pastor really cared about you, he'd be, he'd be visiting your home every day. <laughs> if he really cared about you, you know, if that person really cared, this would be what's going on. If, if that person really, really did love you, they would never have said that. And little bits of attacks all through the, all through. And then people start, well, well you know what, that's right, you know. I think, I think I believe you. And then you start seeing breaks and divisions within the unity of the church. This is what Jude is coming against. These guys coming in and breaking up the unity of the church with what they're bringing in. So we want to be very careful as we, as we look at this um, and understand, you know, when I read this, turning, transposing the grace of God into lasciviousness. That's a scary thought. And then also denying God and Jesus. You know, uh, once you deny him, what do you, what, what, what do you have? You know, and you, if you really study the history of the various denominations, especially the ones that are turning away from God now, and you look at where they started, it is really scary to see how far they've fallen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, believe me though, you look at the Lutheran church where they started, you look at the Methodist church where they started, look at the Presbyterians and where they started, and look at where most of those churches are now. Not everyone in their denomination, but where the denominations as a whole have gone to. Denying God, denying the word of God, denying truth. truth Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah all the way around the board, all the things that they do not follow God on and what they've accepted and you're going and you and you know their history and you're going, God it's scary. This is what Jude is talking about. Watch these teachers coming in, or not even teachers, just these coming in and sometimes it's it's easier to catch the teacher because somebody goes, you know, uh, hey, pastors, elders, deacons—you know this guy, this person has been teaching this. I'm not so sure about this. The ones that are really hard, they're in the church. Oh, I don't believe it. Yeah, did you hear what he said in that message? I think he was talking about you. <laughs> well, you mentioned it. You know, I—you you, quote—you quote a sin, and they know that, that you might have that problem. I think he was—I think he was preaching at you. How, how, how can you dare listen to that kind of stuff? Yeah, he was picking on you. He he knew it was you that he was talking about. And they do that enough, and then all of a sudden, no matter what you say from the pulpit, is going to be picked to death. You know, you're being nice to somebody, I'm praying for you. Why are they praying for you? What what do they think's wrong with you? You know, and little things get put into the people's minds and we gotta be careful. We need to nip that kind of stuff in the bud when we when we hear it, when we when somebody says it to us, going, no. That's not the spirit that God wants in our church. You know, and We need to be very careful that we do not... You know, the, old, the old adage you know, that people go to church and then they have pastor, pastor for lunch. <laughs> you know, f- picking apart the message. That is kind of what he's saying here. That attitude is what he's saying here. Don't let people come in and destroy... Now I understand. I do a lot of things wrong. I don't, I, you, know, you can pick me apart all you want, but it's not going to be good for the church. It won't be good for you. You know, if I'm doing something wrong, pray for me and God will change me. <laughs> if I'm really doing something wrong, come and talk to me. <laughs> you know, saying, Pastor, you, I think you said this or you're doing this and I don't think it's right. You know, now, I'm human. I may not like to hear it, but I've probably also learned to listen to it as well and say, give it, give it some, some, some concern, you know, consideration. But don't be doing it under, under the radar and trying to break the church up. This is something that can be very, very destructive to a church. And this is what Jude is coming back and saying, don't do this. Don't go this way. All right. Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we go. Lord, help us to stay focused on you at all times. Help us to grow in your grace, to walk in your salvation, and to see you greater in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, We simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask Him for His free gift. You must mean the words to to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked Him for eternal life, He has come into you, and He will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.